Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. When Louise Savage first started wheelchair racing, she had no idea the kind of impact she would have, not only on sport, but on society at large. She's a legend, icon and game changer. A nine-time Paralympic gold medalist, Louise is deeply respected and widely admired. She's been awarded the highest honour possible in sports, including a Laureus Sports Award, International Paralympic Hall of Fame and legend status in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. And on the track, lighting the cauldron for the 2000 Sydney Paralympics and winning gold at the Sydney Olympics are among so many career highlights. Put simply, she changed the game for not only Australian sport and the Paralympic movement, but for inclusivity in the Australian society as well. She's a passionate disability advocate, educating about and changing perceptions of people living with a disability, as well as campaigning for major reforms across many industries, most notably airlines. She left an incredible legacy on the sport that continues to have a direct impact on a new generation of athletes. She's currently the coach of Paralympic champion Madison Di Rosario. But like so many athletes, Louise admits the transition to life after being an athlete was difficult and something she struggled with. But the fabled story of Louise Savage begins as a determined little girl growing up in Western Australia. Can you tell me what was little Louise like as a kid growing up? Oh, it's probably a rat bag. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm sure. <laughs> Very stubborn. I still am. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was born with my disability, so I don't really know any different in mm-hmm. terms of what life was like. A lot of people, you know, didn't have their disability from birth. So, um, yeah, I didn't know any different. I suppose I didn't know that I couldn't do things, so to speak. Mm. I was never, never occurred to me, but obviously I did notice that I was a little different. <laughs> was that your parents? Did they instill that into you early? Yeah, I think so. And um, my parents were older when they had me and I think it was great. It was probably very good for me because, um, you know, they asked a lot of questions. They didn't take the first answer as being the right way to do everything. Um, And, yeah, they learned along the way as well. But also um, I think they were trying to make really good decisions for me long term, which I'm very appreciative of now. So, um, yeah, I think they just kind of was like, yeah, why not? You can do that. Sure. (laughs) Um, I think they did know there were some limitations, but Mm. being the personality that I was, I was like, no, I could do it. Come on, no. So, yeah, I was, yeah, probably very frustrating. I love that. I love that. That stubbornness had a purpose, didn't it, with you? Um, I want to talk about your your spinal condition in a sec, but um, I found it interesting that when I looked you up, your Wikipedia page, Louise, wasn't your first name no, at all. Alex That's is. right. Yeah, so my real first name is Alex. It's A-L-I-X, not with an E. Mm. Um, it's actually Alice, I think, in English. Um, my father's from the Seychelles, which is a French-speaking island, and it's their tradition that um, they go by, like, their middle names. So my father was Charles France Morris Savage, and he was called Morris. My sister's Joyce Anne, and she gets called Anne. So oh. I naturally got called Louise. Um, it's caused it's caused a lot of grief. <laughs> <laughs> it's confusing, <laughs> doesn't it? Yes, it's not my real first name. It's not your name on your passport and all this legal yeah, stuff. It's, yeah, it's very frustrating. Yeah, but um, but yeah, that's correct. Yeah, beautiful tradition though. Um, I read that you had twenty two operations by the time that you were eight. Can you just give me a little bit of an insight 
what life was like having so many operations and seeing the inside of hospitals so much growing up? Yeah, I probably didn't think about it at all, to be honest. Um, it was such a way of life. Um, mm. You know, I was off to PMH, which was Princess Margaret Hospital um, in Perth in, in Western Australia. Um, it's not there anymore. But that was, I suppose, my second home. And there were a lot of things that were I really had to, to get done with my hips, my legs, uh, eventually spinal surgery, um, my feet, a lot of corrective things mm. that they continued to do and as I grew. So, um so yeah, I probably didn't think much of it. I know it was a very stressful time for my for my parents, especially my mum, and um, very long surgeries. And you'd, you'd come out, and my mum's you know tearing her hair out because it's taken you know four hours longer than it should have taken, and she's like worried sick. And here I am the next morning making paper mache pig or something, and she's all like, "Oh, you're fine, right? Okay." Um, so I think you know it was it's a really tough time probably for my parents more than myself. But um, I, again, I didn't really know any different. Um, I didn't like it, but, oh, it's just what had to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Were you able to walk at one stage? You, I heard that doctors tried everything, splints and casts. Yeah. Take me through that. I could say I walked. I could say I walked in a bit of commas. Yeah. I think when you're younger and, and even now they, they, tend to try and make you walk all the time and that's because that's the thing and that's the way everyone, you know, that's seen as I could use the horrible word normal um, and that's what everyone does and that's how you should get around mm. and, you know, it's it's terrible to be in a wheelchair kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I did walk on crutches and calipers and I my mum remembers sending me to school with, you know, um, calipers up to my waist and then a, a brace on my back and she goes mm. I was as stiff as a board and I'd go to school I'd be uncomfortable and mm. um, just physically getting around and walking was so slow and I it was just horrible but mm. that's what they made me do and I was just like okay but then as soon as I got to high school it was like nuts stuff that you know you could change classes every you know 40 minutes or so and I couldn't get around and I didn't have freedom and it's funny when you talk talk to people now, once they found life in a chair, they're just like, wow, this is so much easier. Mm. Where was this, you know? So, What was it like for you when you first hopped in that chair? Was it a relief? Yeah, well, I always had both. So, mm. um, you know, walking for me was just really hard um, and I, I don't regret not doing it now. Um, it's just too easy to get around in a chair and, and that's just the life, you know, how it is now. So, mm. but... Um, yeah, I did walk around in primary school, <laughs> but yeah, not anymore. <laughs> when did sport come into your life? Uh, well, I was the only child with a disability at my primary school mm-hmm. and they were great. They mm. um, they integrated me as much as possible. We had sports days and things like that, but I couldn't really compete on an equal level or participate the same as the other children. So mm. it wasn't until I was about eight or nine I was introduced uh, to wheelchair sports. Mm someone um, asked, invited us to a come and try day. And of course I went along and yeah, I was like, wow. Uh, <laughs> there were so many other children of similar age and disabilities to myself. And yeah, I think I fell in love then and thought this is awesome. And, you know, anybody who knows me knows that I'm just slightly competitive. <laughs> so um, so I had a great time. And uh, of course I did every everything they had on offer. I did the athletics, uh, track and field. I did swimming. I did basketball. Um, there was another one, another thing called slalom. Um, there was, there was so many different things that I could do now. And I just, you know, the world kind of opened up for me, I think. Was swimming your first love? 
Yeah, I did learn to swim uh, at the age of three and, um, you know, they thought that this would be a great way of, you know, building up upper body strength is something I was going to have to rely on for the rest of my life. But, um, yeah, definitely, and I was was putting classes with other kids with similar disabilities again, so Mm. I had a lot of fun and I think it was obviously a big learning curve for not only myself learning a skill that I think, you know, lots Mm. of children should learn, but um, also for my parents, you know, my mum got to mix with other parents who had similar children with similar disabilities you know how parents Mm. chat and they learn different hacks and different things and ways of doing things so I think it was great for both of us in the end and of course I loved the water it was it was fantastic so Mm. that was my first introduction to any kind of sport and as Louise Sauvage takes it makes it competitive in some way and you represented WA in the nationals for three years as well like wasn't just having swimming for exercise yeah, eventually I represented my state um, at Junior Nationals um, and I did all the different sports and, of course, I did swimming for a very long time as well. Mm. So I went to Junior and Senior Nationals and, um, yeah, started there and never stopped. <laughs> so when you um, when you did the Try the Sports when you were a little bit older, eight, nine, and you're in the wheelchair, was were you always drawn to track or what eventually got you involved yeah. in track? I think I, I loved it. It was an individual sport. Uh, you know, I want to go fast, of course. Every, <laughs> I think every little kid wants that. Um, so, yeah, I loved it. It was, it was a lot of fun. And there were other people who were competing in it that were um, obviously older than me and I looked to them and thought, oh, yeah, I want to get as fast mm. as them or I want to be able to beat them and all that kind of stuff. So it was a lot of fun. And But I also played basketball, which was a team sport and did some throwing and, and things like that. So always very competitive and trying to beat whatever marks that I set myself. So when did it start getting serious for you, this sport, track? Um, I suppose uh, I went to uh, a senior nationals in, uh, I'll show my age now, 1990, um, <laughs> and I competed in basketball still and just did the track events, Didn't mm-hmm. wasn't swimming as much then, and um, they were going to announce the Australian team to go to world championships at the end of those games, and I thought, oh, well, you know, I did pretty well in the athletics <laughs> and see how we go kind of thing. And um, I'd done some personal best times and, and that's when I got announced to my first international team when I was mm. 16. So wow. um, so from then on, I think, you know, that competition I went away to world champs and saw what my sport was all about and I just thought, oh, well, here we go. Um, and two <laughs> years later was the Paralympics and, you know, I wasn't a kid that grew up thinking, oh, yeah, I want to represent Australia or oh, I want to go to Paralympics. I had no clue about any of it, didn't know it existed. So, yeah, it was. that's when it got a bit more serious, I think. <laughs> so is that your first event? Was that the one in Holland? Yes. Where you won gold in the 100 metres, you set a new world record. Um, in the 100 metres, 200 metres controversial, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> I learned my lesson. Yeah, and learned it early, disqualify for coming out of your lane. Um, yeah, and as you said, that was back in, in 1990 and that yep. just kick-started everything for you too. That would have given you so much confidence when you're on the world stage. You're like, hang on, I can do this. I can, I'm good at this and I'm winning. And it's only two years, as you said, to the Olympics. Paralympics, Paralympics. Yes, definitely. Oh. It's all right. <laughs> it's, in, it's in my DNA to correct. I think Madison I love slaps it. me Please half do. the time. Yep, yep. Um. <laughs> we'll get to that because you also competed in the Olympics, so this is going to start to get confusing yes. as well as we head into, into that. Did you ever have a backup plan at all? As in a different career? Yeah, like if you're 16, <laughs> 17 going in there, were you always like, I'm going to go athletics or were your parents like, okay, but you need... 
Well, um, a backup plan in, here. Initially, um, I think my father was like, oh, when is she going to stop all this wheelchair racing and stuff and get a real job and, you know, settle down kind of thing. And my mother was like, oh, you know, let her go. She'll only do it for a couple of years kind of thing. And, you know, and how was I ever going to make a living out of any of this? But, yeah, I think, you know, after a while it was like, no. You know, I did, you know, I was proudly announced that I was going to be a professional athlete and they were like, oh, yeah. I love that. I love sure. That. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the time there was there was no money in it and, you know, I didn't get sponsorship but there was no coverage and, you know, there was just so many negatives there that weren't going my way. But, um, but no, no, that's what I was going to do. Um, so, yeah, I was discouraged, I suppose, to start with. But, um, but yeah, I just stuck at it. And I, I did... Um, you know, I finished school in, in year 10 and then did year 11 through distance education and then didn't actually finish year 12. Um, and this is back in the day where, you know, we didn't have the internet ne- necessarily the way it is now. So it was all pen and paper and, and yeah, snail, yeah. snail mail, uh, my assignments mm-hmm. and things like that. So it was it was tough being on the road and competing and, and trying to um, – you know, do school at the same time. And I also went to TAFE for a while as well. So I did a number of different things, I suppose. But I think the the greatest lesson and the greatest, um, I suppose, classroom has been, you know, travelling and, and seeing yeah. the world, meeting different people, you know, experience different countries and cultures. And um, you don't know all the experiences that you, that you get, I suppose. You learn so much from it and you don't realise what you're learning. In those early days, you alluded to it. Then, what was media coverage like? Um, mm. There wasn't wasn't much. <laughs> no, there wasn't a lot. I suppose 1992 was the first time Paralympics in Australia had got any TV coverage at all, which mm. was fantastic. The ABC actually did it, mm-hmm. um, and we got coverage for the first time, and that was unheard of. And um, I I threat I, I, I can't imagine what Karen Ty thought of me at the. <laughs> she was on the team and, you know, she'd get one word answers out of me. Now she probably can't shut me up. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was fantastic. It was absolutely amazing to, yeah, get that coverage. But um, when I first started, you know, you'd be in the human interest pages and, you know, isn't this fantastic and it was quite patronising, I suppose. But, but now, you know, athletes obviously should be and where they deserve to be on, you know, in the sports pages and getting the coverage that they, you know, should have and the respect. So it's, it's changed a lot since I started, definitely. 1992, Barcelona, let's go there to the, your first Paralympics. Um, you're the Australian record holder in the 100, 200, 800, 1500 and the marathon by then. But the Games almost didn't happen. What happened there? Yeah, you know what? It's it's almost something that I've almost blocked out of my memory. Mm. Like in my mind, it was like, no, no, we're going. Um, we're definitely going. But there was a problem with funding and a, and a whole bunch of different things with regards to um, having the Games happen and of course getting us there um so for us you know in my mind maybe I was oblivious to it at the time but Mm. I was like no no we're going you know it's happening and that kind of thing and maybe I was um definitely you know told not to worry about it and that you know I was shielded from all of that but you know we did fundraise and we did get ourselves there and you know I've obviously done a lot of that over the years through national championships and world champs and having to fund ourselves to get to these competitions and funding for uniforms and yeah a lot of lamington mm. drives and chook raffles and things like that exhausting when you're meant to be training yeah yeah and a lot of obviously family support and community support and so many people that have made such a big 
difference to my life and and me being able to do what I I was so passionate about. So I'm very grateful to to all of that and and still am and for the support of so many different people and and even on the journey now, you know, and just in trying to continue on in in the sport and give other people the opportunity, you know, you you can't do it by yourself. You've got got to have people to help you. You cleaned up as well in those first Paralympics. You came home. That with, sounds good. Yeah, three gold <laughs> medals, 100, 200, and 400, and sixth in the marathon. I'm really interested in this because you've got the sprint events, but you've also then got your longer events, the longest that there are, the marathon. How difficult was that um, training for, for both of those? I'm thinking that would be two different oh. sets of kind of training. Am I right? Yeah, I probably didn't train much for the marathon. I did my first marathon ever so I could actually enter the one at the Paralympics and I did that in Adelaide the same year and I thought, oh, well, give it a crack, eh? <laughs> but um, so they let me enter it. Um, but, yeah, I got gold, as you said. The sprints were my events, the, mm. the one, two and four, and then the 800 uh, I got silver and mm-hmm. um, to a particular girl called Connie Hanson and she was the best in the world at the time and I thought, oh, yeah, I've got to beat Connie. So um, so that was a bit of a challenge, you know, after she beat me in that. I thought, rightio, uh, yeah. <laughs> we've got to keep going. But um, the marathon was interesting. I think I remember being in the pack um, with about six other girls and I think them all looking at me going, what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and eventually I did drop off and, and didn't, you know, obviously came sixth. But, um, but yeah, it was an amazing experience to, to do that. I was, you know, very grateful for it. Um, then in the Atlanta Games, four gold medals four years later, 400, 800, 1500, 5000 metres, and then fourth in the marathon. I'm seeing a shift away from sprint towards the longer events, but I really want to talk about, we'll get to that in a second, to the Sydney Olympics. And I'm talking about the Olympics, not Paralympics with this, um, because in Sydney, the at the Sydney Olympics and the Atlanta Olympics, the 800 metre race was a demonstration event there in the Olympics. Why was that? Why do they have demonstration events? Yeah, so they'd had demonstration races a, a few times at the Olympic Games. Um, there was an 800 metres for women. Um, I think it was a little bit of a showcase to, to show what was coming up. Mm. Uh, you know, the Paralympics obviously preceding the, the, the Olympics. We we like to call it the test event. Uh, but <laughs> The warm-up, yep. Mm, yes. For the main um, event, yes, yes I like that's that. right. <laughs> I'm terrible. Um, Not at all, I love it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so they, they did have demonstration events and, it, you know, it was just a showcase. And basically to get to the Olympics, you had to qualify, you know, the fin- only the final race was done there. So the rounds weren't went at the Olympics. You had to go somewhere else to get to that race. And, and then the final was yeah, the final eight women for, for the 800 moves was done at the actual Olympic Games. It was, it was a massive showcase and I, I, I think it was actually really good, although, you know, they say that not all the disability groups get to do that and, you know, I understand that that's not fair for everyone, but I think it was a, a great showcase to show what was coming up and to, to say, hey, the Paralympics. So, I, you know, I kind of in the same respect think it was a shame that they, they stopped it. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a separate event, so, oh, well, it's all good. But, yeah, I was uh, very honoured to be able to have that experience as well many times. Yeah. So what was it like then? Take me to that race. Did you feel that pressure in Sydney? Yeah, at the Olympics with that roaring crowd there in the stadium. It was massive, absolutely massive. Um, I remember coming out to the stadium and, you know, 110,000 people and it was just a sea of colour and and 
flashing lights and the noise and it was the night that um, Jai Tarima had won the silver medal in the long jump. Mm-hmm. So everyone was out there and they were already cheering him on and I was so excited. And here I come out, you know, 100 metres round from the start finish. I'm the only Aussie in the race and, you know, obviously I've got Australian suit on and, and people start screaming at you and yelling and I'm just like, oh, this is so overwhelming. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, we, we got on the start line, obviously. We went and I was actually really sick on the night. I had a bad cold and oh. I was so stressed about it and <gasps> made myself sick. And, yeah, it probably wasn't fantastic um, preparation for that mm. one. But, um, but you know, we knew what we had to do and try and control the race and everything. And, obviously, I ended up winning, but it was just phenomenal. <laughs> you know, I, uh, you know my, my race plan went to a T more or less. Um, that last bend, um, you know, I felt like a, you know, a rush of air came underneath me and pushed me home and I could do no wrong. And yes. I, wish I, I wish I'd done a couple more victory laps now. Yeah. <laughs> so did you then have to race that same race at the Paralympics? Yes, yes. Straight and afterwards? I didn't win. Yeah. What happened there? <laughs> um, it was my first race and there was a lot of controversy um, with regards to it. So in, uh, and the rules are a little different now, but the rules back then, if there was a, a crash or an incident within the first 200 metres of the race, then they would rerun it. And, of course, there was a crash and it wasn't, I wasn't impeded and neither was the winner. Uh, but, yeah, it was, I feel, obviously, I would have loved to have had another crack at it. But um, it was really disappointing for those other athletes that didn't get to to re-race and I think that was unfair. But it, it was taken to the the Court of Arbitration for Sport and uh, the Canadians won. So they got the medal upheld and she got the gold medal. And, you know, sure, she was the better athlete on the day, but, um, I, again, I feel sorry for the guys that didn't get to race um, that race and they should have they should have had that right. You had a big rivalry with Chantelle. Yes. Petit, how do I pronounce her last name? Petit-Claire? Uh, it's Petit-Claire, yeah. Petit-Claire. Um, She's uh, French-Canadian, yes. And she said, I dream more about Louise than I do my boyfriend, which just <laughs> <laughs> shows you. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a fierce rivalry that you, that you had with her, especially if, yeah, she's dreaming more about, about you than, than her boyfriend at the time. Yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> um, we did have a great rivalry and it was, it was fantastic, you know. Um, I loved racing with her and just knowing that, you know, we were racing each other and we, we had such respect for each other and knew that we were both, you know, probably the best in the world and it was just such a great ding-dong battle and, yeah, it was fantastic. And she she went on after I retired and she absolutely obliterated it. She did so well and, um, yeah, it was fantastic to see her. And she's now a, a politician in Canada. Yeah, right. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, you broke down a lot of barriers in your career Louise, that, you know, we all thank you for being able to break down those barriers, um, including sponsorships for Paralympic athletes. When did you start seeing a shift in your career in receiving that corporate support, that sponsorship? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, My most successful Paralympics, as you mentioned, were um, in Two thousand and, and uh, well, in in Atlanta. So mm. I I did get four gold there, and that was my most successful. But it wasn't until Sydney was going to get the games um, that I suppose the had the opportunity to get some corporate backing. And I you know I appreciate that more than anything because um, it wasn't done really much before that. Um, I was uh, an Australian shooter sport 
scholarship holder and they were a big big contributor to my uh, being able to compete and, and race and I'll definitely thank them 100%. But it wasn't until um, the Games were going to be here in, in Australia that, um, you know, some of the big corporates got on board and I was particularly only one of the – one only one of athletes that was with a disability that got selected for different ca- campaigns. So mm. I was very appreciative, um, you know, to be part of that, and I suppose a little bit of a groundbreaker um, in that respect. So it was fantastic to be included in that. And they saw the value, and um, and maybe they see the value. I mean, they obviously do now. They see the value in in, in athletes with disabilities, the, the athletes that are going to Paralympics and World Champs and and competing on world stage. They can see that and see the markability, and and that it's not just a a, a patronising or pity thing. It's it's no. They can see it. They can see the athleticism in the athletes and how hard they work. And yeah, it's fantastic to see it change and um, to see it change and to be part of it. Who was? What kind of sponsors are we talking about? What kind of brands gave you that initial support? Uh, Qantas, mm-hmm. uh, National Australia Bank, um, Siemens, the electronics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, a few that that jumped on board that were just yeah. I got part to be part of part of their crew and it was just it was fantastic mm. to see them um so some massive australian brands which were you know it was yeah just... they're not small brands are they they're massive no. brands. what off the back of that did that aid do for your performance and also did that spark a lot of um and change in terms of what media coverage you received as well yeah i think it just definitely to be part of that those groups was definitely something obviously that pushed me forward again and it did help obviously with my ability to to train more full-time and to get better and to to know that I was financially secure and to try and help me set up I mean I would never have got a home loan if it wasn't from NAB let's face it Um, (laughs) there's no way you know you know you don't have a a regular income or something that's you know something that's just so fluctuant um so see I would say you'd never get a home loan if it wasn't for all the effort that you put into winning all those gold <laughs> medals leading up to that moment as well. Yeah, and to have them, you know, support me and back me, um, it's just phenomenal. So, yeah, I mean, it does, did help me in so many avenues in life and, and not only to be able to c- continue to compete and do well. So, yeah. What about the grand scheme of things for inclusion? What did that do, having that support in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, I think inclusion has come a long way as well. Um, I think it obviously sparked it, as you said, and just made it go forward and make people change their mindset, I suppose, more than anything about how they could approach different things and why shouldn't they, um, Mm. you know, be more diverse and not just necessarily, you know, also different sports and different athletes, uh, not just mainstream as well. So I think that like kind of opened them up to so many different things that they probably were so um, channeled in the past, you know, um, oh, these sports are the only ones that get coverage. These are the only, well, why don't you support someone who's not? And then they saw it explode and how much people loved it. I mean, I often say if you can't see it, you can't be it, you can't do it, that kind of thing. And as soon as people see it, they're like, oh, wow. No, I'm super interested in that. They want to come and watch. They want to come and follow that person or mm. be involved and make them their new best, you know, new bestie on socials now. <laughs> <laughs> um, did that spark a wave of other support and corporate support for other para-athletes as well? 
I hope so. Yeah, definitely. I think also just for for Paralympics in general, like even Paralympics Australia, who who support us in getting to the games and and providing that you know a pathway for athletes. I think that's more than anything. It's it's helped them gain the corporate sponsors to to be able to get us and maintain that that ability for, for a games preparation and and even just to get to Tokyo was massive for them. So there's so many factors involved. So, you know, I think it's definitely sparked it to, to continue and to show that we are worthy and that we are marketable and there's no reason why they shouldn't get on that, that people want to get on the bandwagon now. It's great. <laughs> Let's talk about your marathons. Um, you competed in your first marathon, your first Boston marathon, I should say, in 1997. Um, and then you won that four times. What makes that Boston marathon so special? Why is it so iconic? Well, <laughs> back in the day, um, when I switched to long distance on the track and the road and I decided to change everything, I changed, you know, my diet and training and I wanted to be competitive over that distance. And What made you make it, that decision? What made you uh, go from track to, to, to the road? Yeah, I was still competing on the track but in the shorter stuff and I thought, well kind of done that a little bit, but there's there's room to grow in my sport. There's other events that I'd like to tackle and mm-hmm. set new challenges. And so for that was the, the longest stuff on the track and also the road races, which is anything from 10K up to marathon distance. So yeah, I had to change a lot to get competitive over that distance. And it did take me five years to win Boston. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. But um but yeah, it was it was Boston Marathon was the race, of course, that everyone wanted to win. It had the most prestige, the most prize money, and within the world of wheelchair racing, that was the the race. So of course, I saw that and thought, oh, radio, I want to win Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was the big challenge, definitely every year going to Boston, and 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 I did do it nine years in a row, which you know you've got to be a bit stupid to do a marathon in the first place. So you know, well. <laughs> <laughs> all strong nine years. You did the Boston Marathon nine years. Yes. And then you won four times. Um, Yes. You beat that first year the queen of Boston, Jean Driscoll, um, who at that stage had won seven straight Boston marathons. Mm. Must have been something special to break that run or did you have to like make a run for it afterwards because obviously she was the queen, (laughs) right? She was the local favourite. They loved her. (laughs) Yes, I think um, the biggest uh, obstacle for me for Boston was not the course, not the cold, not anything. It was Jean. Um, <laughs> just the, I suppose, the magnitude of her as an athlete, as a person. And like as you said, every time she had entered the Boston mm. Marathon, she'd she won, won it. <laughs> so it was like, oh, gosh, you know. And, you know, she she was really good. She was so strong, like, up the hills and um I can proudly say I was the the biggest girl on the circuit. So, you know, I went downhill really well, but um, <laughs> probably not uphill as good. But, you know, I, I worked on that so hard. And um, in my first Boston Marathon win, um, you know, I, I was with Jean and um, normally we'd get to a certain part of the race and there's quite a series of hills towards the end. And we'd turn a corner at the fire station there and um, Heartbreak Hill has by the name, it's pretty tough, but um, we'd get to that part of the race every year and, you know, basically I'd wave goodbye to Jean, you know, she'd power on up and I'd be like, <laughs> this is terrible. 
but this particular year um, I, I matched it with her and I was with her on the hills and I'd done all the work. I'd done so much training mm. and um, she'd never had anyone with her at that part of the race and I think she panicked a little and I was a bit panicked too. But, you know, we'd, we'd got to a certain part um, and at the bottom of one of the hills, they call them trolley tracks, it's like tram tracks. Mm-hmm. And um, you've got to take a good line across those to, to not mm-hmm. get caught and um, unfortunately... She didn't take such a good line. I think she was a bit stressed that I was there and she got one of her wheels caught and she kind of came out of chair. It's not too wow. sad. She got back She got back in and kept going. But I went on to win that Boston yep. Marathon and um, unfortunately, of course, I won and I was very excited and <laughs> won my first Boston. <laughs> but um, lots of people were like, oh, well, you only won because Jean crashed. And I'm oh. like, rah, radio. Well, we'll have to come back and do that again. <laughs> Don't so, give Louise another challenge. Yeah. So we had a lot of ding dong battles again with Jean on Boston, and yeah, a number of them um, unfortunately came down to a sprint finish, which is kind of stupid in a marathon, but it, wow. it happens a fair bit in wheelchair racing um, as we work in packs of, of athletes. And yeah, come down to a sprint finish a couple of times where I've come from behind and, and just pipped Jean on the post. And yeah, I think we're both in shock, but yeah, it's yeah, a couple of wins there, which are. Yeah, amazing. Three wins in a row. You beat her three times in a row, didn't you? Yes, I held off her eighth victory for three years before love. (laughs) She got there though. (laughs) She did. She got the 2000 and um, I didn't win in that year and then she retired from Boston and then I did the year afterwards and then I retired from Boston. Nice, nice. Just added another one there. Um, What's the hardest part of a marathon? And when you hit that part, Mm. where does your mind go? What gets you through that tough bit? Um, I think it's a lot harder if you're by yourself, just plugging away. Mm. Um, the good parts are obviously when you're working with someone else and you're doing good speeds and you can sit in and draft and then take your turn at the, at the front and there's a lot of respect to be able to do that um, amongst the, the races because everyone's going for time, everyone's, you know, working on their, you know, strengths and weaknesses. Um but then there's also the time where you, you've really got to look at your tactics and, and where you're going to try and make a break or what you're going to try and do, how you're feeling on the day. Mm. Can you actually do this? Is it just enough to be hanging on? Um, so you've really got to think about what what's going on with you. But the I think the tough part for me would have to be when you're on your own and, and you know, obviously if you're out the front and you're being chased, mm. that's terrible because you don't know where anybody is and you don't know how far you're in front or whether you've slowed down and and looking at your speed thinking I've got to keep this up I've got to Mm. work as hard as I can and it and it is the mental game um I remember in Boston and only ever happened to me once and you know towards the end of the Boston Marathon there's a number of corners a lot of turns Mm. and um I got to that part of the race and there's a lot of spectators at that point too it's quite deep uh, with people and they're cheering and screaming. And I got to that point and I suddenly couldn't hear anything. I couldn't feel anything. I was just in the zone, so to speak. So I was definitely just so focused on that finish line and chasing Jean down at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was just it. So for me, that was probably the one time where I've been so focused on something that I just, everything shut down apart from the goal, wow. the absolute yeah. goal. Um so, yeah, I think the, the toughest part is that. But, like, I don't know, marathons are just, I don't know, I, I think you've done 10K before you know it and mm. it's kind of just into it. And, yeah. You know, if you know the course, you 
Be prepared for it. If you're Louise, to chase someone down and be competitive oh, rather yeah. than be chased, I like that. Um, yep. <laughs> let's move on to Athens. Did you know at the time that this would be your last Paralympics? And if so, how long did you know that this would be it? Yes, the answer is yes. I did know it was going to be my last Paralympics. Um, at the beginning of that year, I wasn't sure I was going to actually make it. Um, I carry a number of injuries through the repetitive nature of my sport. Mm. And unfortunately, um, I was just getting so much pain. I had a lot of impingements throughout my neck and shoulders and it got to the point where, you know, I'd wake up and I couldn't feel my hands and my arms and things like that. And mm. It was just a like a dagger going down my forearms and um, it was really hard. You couldn't, no matter how you lay or did anything, mm. uh, you didn't touch anything and it would still happen. Normally when you get a numb hand or something, you just, you know, give it a bit of shake and she'll be right. But um it didn't happen for me and I just um, I had to make a sensible decision to, to stop and try not to, you know, pound my body too much more. So mm. we made a decision um, after nationals. I had to, it was about April time, um, whether to keep going or not and had a lot of discussions with the medical team and, and psych and things like that to, to see whether we could physically do this and with the minimal amount of training and, and just make the most of everything. So a lot of quality, not quantity. Um and so I definitely knew that that was my last games. Yeah. Were you okay at the time? Were you ready to to move on? Obviously, physically um, you had to, but but mentally, psychologically. Yeah, I think so. I think I was okay with it just because I knew I had to do this. Um, if it was forced upon me in another way, where I you know, broken an arm or something like that. I think that would be more devastating. Um, I know a lot of athletes have sudden injuries and, and unfortunately they're forced into it whether they like it or not. So for me, I suppose I had a bit of time to come to terms with it. It probably didn't help after I retired a little bit just because um, I think it's been well documented. A lot of athletes just lose themselves and lose their way and um, I was fortunate I didn't go off the rails too much, but uh, I really struggled with it, you know, mm. going from something that you were extremely good at, you knew your routine and, you know, everything, you had your team around you and your program and, you know, day-to-day -day stuff was planned out and then, of course, that's all taken away from you and you're like, oh, what, where to now kind mm. of thing. So um, I, I was one of those athletes that did struggle with that mentally more than anything and, um yeah, it was really tough. But, um, but yeah, I wanted to stay involved in my chosen sport. So I uh, looked to coaching. How is it coaching that pulled you out of that slump of that post-athlete life? Or, and how long did it, did it go on for that you were in a difficult place and a tough place? I did try and prepare to be, you know, be a coach. I, I completed uh, some courses prior to, to finishing up my sport and thought I'd have a go um, at coaching. Didn't know if I'd be any good, mm. but uh, yeah, just thought I'd have a go. But, you know, and then I, I did start coaching pretty much straight after the games. Mm. Um, and I actually started coaching my training partner at the time, Angie Ballard. And uh, I think I must have asked her 10 times if she was sure if she wanted me to have a go. <laughs> uh, but um, we were we were great. We, we did a great job and, and we got to, to Beijing, which was the, the first Paralympics after my retirement. And mm. I got to Beijing and lost it. It was just so hard being there as a staff member, as a coach, as opposed to an athlete. And that probably didn't help at all, put it that way. Um, so 2009 was very tough um, after those games and trying to get my head around, you know, you know my, I suppose, future and, and what it held and 
that kind of thing. Was it just because not being there as an athlete hurt? What what made that so so difficult? Yeah, I think um, seeing a lot of my competitors still there competing um, mm. and knowing that I couldn't be out there with them and I wasn't part of that anymore, um, it was very difficult and I probably wasn't the best coach that I could have been at those games, mm. which is uh, really sad to think about it now because I, I, there's no way I would have wanted to let the athletes down, mm. uh, but I, I probably wasn't at my best. What got you out? of that? How did you get yourself out of that? Um, I had a lot of support and I definitely um, talked to a lot of other athletes in similar situations and what they did and how it helped them. And it was great. It's I think it's always good talking to someone who's been there and done that. Mm. Um, and they give you little tips of advice and things and different people to talk to. And I had a lot of um, help through my state institute and also different um sports sites along the way to, to really, you know, nut it all out and, and think mm. about, you know, who I was as a person, not necessarily just, um, you know, what I'd achieved. Um, so, yeah, you've kind of got to look at the bigger picture and not mm. just, you know, so focused on sport and, you know, we all get there and I'm, I'm still very focused on sport, unfortunately. But, um, <laughs> it's your life. <laughs> so, yeah, it is my, it's a little different, but, you know, you are a person as opposed to just all those things that, yeah, that you've managed to achieve. What was the next Paralympics that you went to? What was that then like? Was that okay that you were like yes. okay in that transition, <laughs> that you're like I'm not an athlete anymore or is there still when you go to Paralympics still a part of you that you know, wants to get out there and, and race? We talked to Jana Pittman and, and she says she's still, you know, watching the, watching the Olympics is, still can be tough. For her. Oh, I'd love to get out there. I'd still love to race. <laughs> oh, my mind is ready. The body, <laughs> the body is not so willing. Uh, but, uh, but definitely, that yeah, I'd love to be doing it still. That'd be fantastic. Um, and maybe if you know we'd had the resources we have now, I might probably might not have had to retire so early. But who knows? What's well, a lot of what ifs there. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but no, I love it. I love going to the competitions now. I love going to the Paralympics. So, you know, Paralympics is very stressful, but we normally go to Switzerland every year. We haven't for a couple of years now, but uh, and we see some of the cream of the crop racing there and that, oh, that I think that energises me for a whole year. I love it. I love my sport. <laughs> love seeing the guys compete and race and being part of it. Um, you know, I'm much more... Um, I suppose, able to be part of the staff now and part of the coaching crew. And, um, yeah, it's good to have that level with the athletes as well. It's good. They know, they know I've been there and done that. And, yeah, it's, it's a good communication level. Maddie Di Rosario is star that you coach at the moment. And you two have had a long relationship but a really special relationship as well, haven't you? <laughs> Special. Uh, <laughs> that brings upon many things. <laughs> tell me, tell me. <laughs> um, yeah, I started working with Maddie when she was about 14. Um, she was pointed out to me, um, she's from Perth as well as, mm -hmm. as myself, and she came over to Sydney for a junior nationals and she was in a borrowed chair and it was like miles too big for her and <laughs> she, was, she was competing and I was told by somebody that I should come along and check this girl out. And I said, all right then, no worries. Um, so I came along and, yeah, I instantly saw that she had a lot of talent. Mm. So, we, you know, we, we found her another chair, another borrowed chair. We've all been there. Um, mm -hmm. I've been through many myself. So we got her another chair. She went back to Perth and um, I started to do some coaching with her remotely. 
I worked with her and just wrote some programs and she would complete them in, in Perth and stuff like that. And she got better and better and mm. definitely got better and better. Um, and she started making Australian teams when she was very young. Um, she made her first team and she Sounds was part of the relay. <laughs> yeah, she did really well. Um, and, you know, I always said to her, you know, she was getting better and better and I just said to her, you know, when you want to go to the next level, when you want to be really competitive, mm. when you want this, let me know kind of thing. Mm. Like she was, she was training, she was doing great. Um, but I said, when you really want to be competitive, when you want to be the winner, when you want to dominate, then, you know, we have to do more, we have to do it differently. And she was very reluctant to, um, to come to the East coast. She was reluctant to, to train like that, but eventually she did. And within about three months, we went to our worlds after that and she won her first world championship medal. And I was like, all right, you've had a bit of a taste and we need to up the ante even more and you need to be more, you know, it needs to be more consistent, need to work a lot harder. And she did it. She decided. It was it was her decision and I was just happy that I was there to be part of that journey and we're continuing on. <laughs> yes. Tell me, though, from seeing her as a teenage girl at 14 to where she is now, she's just won the New York Marathon, Tokyo Games Gold, we'll talk about that. Like, just everything. She's on, she's in Vogue, she's in Elle, she's in, like, Under Armour, got all these brands that are, like, supporting her. But what's been the most, for you, seeing that journey and being along with her with that journey, what's been the most satisfying part? I think seeing her achieve her goals more than anything, um, for me, obviously I achieved a lot myself, but getting the, the thrill and the buzz out of, you know, that for myself, but being part of someone's journey and knowing all the work and all the little things that we do and, you know, seeing her get that reward is just the ultimate, definitely the ultimate to be part of that. Um, you know, and just the journey, you know, seeing things change from when I competed to now and I want everything for her. I want everything. I want all those sponsors. I want her to be in all the magazines. I want her to be recognised for who she is. And yeah, she's got a lot of attitude going on too. So she's, <laughs> she's, got, she's got a lot going on there. And, um, and that's great. It's, it's who she is and she, mm. she deserves to be that person mm. to be nothing else than who she wants to be and who she is. So, yeah, I want the world for her and I want us to dominate even more. <laughs> yes, I love how you are. Talking about dominating, take me to the Tokyo Games and that marathon. That was some race. That was nail-biting. Oh. What was that like for you as a coach who wants to get out there but has to be <laughs> on the sidelines watching? It's um, tougher, tougher than being out there? Very stressful. Yeah, it's, oh, you know, obviously I know that I can't be out there now. Uh, but, um, but yeah, very stressful. Like, you know, the race started, it was drizzly rain the whole time and, you know, we prepared for, you know, obviously a hot race. Um, we'd done a lot of training for that. And we did have hot races in the early part of the, the competition. But, um, yeah, the marathon was like that. We, we prepared as best we could um, and I actually did the bloody marathon tour and she didn't. Mm. Um, so <laughs> I did that for her and just told her, you know, what to do and where, you know, was the make or break spots. And so she obviously took that on board, thank goodness. And Which um, was the last hill, right? That yeah, was your... was, I said there was going to be one. There's a, there's a gradual incline and then there is quite a, a sharp one and then from that moment on it's kind of a little bit of undulating 
down in towards the um, the stadium, so that finished inside the stadium. Mm. So I said, you know, this is going to be the spot where you've got to that that'll be the decider, I I believe. Mm. So she got to that part of the race, and they use like a clister or a glue on their gloves so that they don't slip in the rain. And she still had a lot of grip, and so I think a lot of those girls got to that part of the race, and they that was slipping a lot. So she was great. She got to that part and thought, oh, this is the hill. It's about the right kilometres. Okay, go. So she did. And knowing, and you know, it's very gutsy what she did, um, mm. knowing that the the girl with her, Manuela Shah from Switzerland, she rolls so much better than Maddie and she, she's, she's a super athlete, unbelievable athlete. Mm. So for her to make a break there and know that she still had quite a few kilometres to go till, till the finish line was just phenomenal. And uh, there was a girl that went out earlier, Susanna, and she went off the front of the pack and everyone just thought, oh, well, they're fighting for the minor medals now. Mm. But when they caught her, I was in the stadium watching and thinking, okay, it's on again. (laughs) (laughs) And it just got a million times more stressful. But she came into the stadium and they had uh, 500 metres to to go. So they did the home straight and then had the lap. And... Yeah, that was just insane. And you could just see Manuela catching her her, and then Maddie pushed her a little bit wide and she, I think she just gave it to her in the end, but it was just uh, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And, yeah, to see her at the end, I was just like, oh, that's just, you stopped me, stopped my heart there. Yeah. (laughs) I think the whole of Australia's heart stopped as well in that that last little bit. I can't imagine then being in your position. Um, and her coach as well. Um, we ask in every episode for someone close to our guests to record a message. Um, and so Maddie in New York, where she's just won the New York Marathon, um, recorded this little message for you about the role that you've had in her life and also in other athletes' lives. Well, I didn't even really know what to say on this. I feel like you and I spend so much time together, we talk so much. There isn't anything that, that I could say that you don't already know. But I um, I do hope, you know, that, that this sport in, in Australia, but also also on a global level, is so much, it's so much better for, for having, you know, the impact that you've had on, on so many levels, on, on, on my career, on the kids, but on the on the entire Paralympic movement is, is basically unparalleled. And, and I know you don't think about that stuff as much. Thank you very much, Liv, in the in the in the in the present and planning for the future, but um, but I do hope you know the the enormous impact that you've had and and how grateful every single one of us is for that and for you and everyone in sport as well. Oh, that's so nice. She's a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a great relationship. It's a lot of banter, isn't it? Always? Oh yes. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's oh, it's it's nice. I mean, yeah, I think it's just great that you know we can have we're such a close community, and you know we all need to help each other out. And I think she realizes that you know when she was younger, she had a lot of support from the older guys and teaching her the way. And you know, mm. like I said, we recycle all the chairs and the wheels mm. and god knows what else and I still do that to this day you know trying to help the kids out so that they can have the experiences that we've had and and progress the thought the sport forward so I'm really appreciative that she she feels the same way so it's really nice. You have been named Australian Paralympian of the Year four times the AIS Athlete of the Year twice um you're in the Australian of the Year awards you won the World Laureus Sports Award wow um two-time International Female Athlete of the Year 
You lit the cauldron for the Sydney 2000 Paralympics. You're the flag bearer for the Athens Paralympics. Um, You have a super heat ferry and a pathway in Sydney Olympic Park named in your honour, inducted into Sport Australia Hall of Fame, legend status in the Australian Sport Hall of Sport Australia Hall of Fame, the first Paralympian to be received that honour. Um, you're in the International Paralympic Hall of Fame. Is there anything left to achieve um, <laughs> at all? And in that long list of accolades, is there one, um, I know it'd be hard to say a favourite, but is there one moment or an honour that you were given that really stood out and, and had a, a bigger impact that, for you? Oh, um, I don't know if there's more to achieve. I never knew there was more to achieve after I retired. Um, I think after being an athlete, you don't think about any more awards or anything after that. And then they kind of kept coming and I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> now you get the coaching awards as well, which I didn't <laughs> yeah. even mention in that list, but there's cool. a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, who knows? But um, I think being inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, obviously in my community, my mm-hmm. country, was very, very special. The International Paralympic Committee also was probably um, that award internationally also. Um, I think it's sometimes very hard to find your place and to find where you belong. Mm. And for me, I belong. So to get those awards was just phenomenal and to think that you were honoured at that level. Um, then when I was, of course, elevated to legend status, that was beyond the wildest dreams. Mm. Um, And so that was probably very special. I think to have my family and my friends, my close friends there was just to share it with them, for those people that have been there the whole time and have, you know, really been on that journey with me and supported me was just as fantastic to include them, to know that they they really had that impact. So, yeah, to be honoured again and to be in that membership is just you can't explain it. It's just insane. <laughs> and to light the cauldron at the Paralympics in your hometown, that must have been true or something. Uh, that was a big secret. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember four years earlier seeing a friend of mine carry the torch in Atlanta and just thinking, hmm, I'd like to do that. It'd be <laughs> awesome, wouldn't it? And then, of course, I got to light the cauldron, which was, yeah, just a little bit step up. So, um, yeah, it was phenomenal. I did keep it a secret uh, from my family as well, so it was a good surprise. What did your mum say when, when she saw you lighting that cauldron? Did she have an inkling that you might be able to do this? I don't think she did. Um, back in the day, my sister had the handy cam and she was videoing up cam. in the stands. Yes, I know. <laughs> For those young people, that was a video recorder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just thinking, do they know what that is? It wasn't yeah. one on your phone. I don't even think we had no. mobile phones then. They were only just coming in, actually. Phones, but they weren't capable Bricks. of quite yeah. they uh, do now. <laughs> so she had the handy cam and, uh, you know, my sister's videoing, of course, and you can hear my mother in the background and she saw me light it and she can, you can hear her saying, oh, that cheeky bugger, she didn't tell me about that. <laughs> cheeky bugger. the best. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Captured on film as well. As well. That's classic. Yep. <laughs> That's Rita for you. <laughs> Rita, I love it. Oh, can we talk a little bit about where we're out in terms of equality and inclusion in um, Australia? Because with your platform came opportunity to be able to really fight for equality. When did you realise that you could make an impact and use your profile and platform? Um, I suppose early on I, I was very much thrust, I suppose, into the spotlight to a certain extent. And in the end, I wanted people to 
understand. I wanted to be able to be accessible. I wanted to talk about my disability. I wanted to talk about because I wanted people to to know what it was all about and to understand the sport and understand me. So I suppose prior to, to 2000 and doing interviews and things like that, I didn't shy away from it. I didn't think, oh, well, I don't want to talk about that. Or I just thought, all right. And then I suppose you do a lot of media training to a certain extent to, mm. to take it where you want it to as well mm. and get certain messages across. So it was an opportunity and, you know, you saw it as an opportunity to educate to, to let people know and to try and get them more involved and more interested and 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 to learn about the, the different sports and classifications and disabilities mm. and to, you know, so so I suppose for me that was just an opportunity. Every opportunity I got I took and and just to to get that more exposure. They say all all press or all attention is good attention, whether mm. it's positive or negative, and it's true. We saw this year equal pay reward for Paralympic athletes as the same as Olympic athletes, which was a huge development. So previously, they Paralympians didn't get anything um, when they won a gold medal, where, for instance, Olympic athletes received $20,000. And I think I never knew this was, it, there was such disparity. I didn't realise that this was this was a thing. And I think a lot of people as well were shocked, but that was, that was changed this year and you get exactly the same amount um, for Paralympic and Olympic athletes. But in terms of equality and inclusion, how can sport be better? What else can be done to have an even playing field, so to speak? Yeah, that's oh, so broad and mm. so hard to find a total solution for it. Um, I think a lot of people, as you said, including yourself, didn't realise the d- disparity between Olympic and Paralympic. There are so many. We're two different organisations as well. So mm. um, the Olympics being a lot richer, obviously, than, than us um, can you know, have that opportunity to, to I suppose, pay their athletes medal um, incentives. Um, but our money, we, we can't do that. And and in the end, that money didn't come from Paralympics Australia. It did come from a different fund. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it is, is, is very different for us. Um, but the, there's so many different things. Like we don't, we don't have the same uniforms. We don't have the same um, different facilities. There's, there's lots of different things that aren't the same. And you know it's it's come a long way though. I, I will I won't be totally negative in terms of you know lots of things have come on par, which is fantastic. But funding is never going to be the same. I don't think. But um, I live in hope. Mm. Never say never. I should, never say shouldn't never. say that. Mm. I shouldn't have said that. Um, so I suppose definitely you know it's there's lots of different things that are not the same. But it, it's hard to kind of think how do you make it equal. I think the educational process is the one thing more than anything, having facilities, having um, the opportunity more than anything to um, have those pathways, to have mm. um, the sports at that elite level is, is it's, it's funding is the, one of the biggest keys. I mean, I think like most things, money makes lots of things go around. But yeah, it would be great, but I'm not sure we're quite equal yet. Um, I hope mm. I do get to see that in my lifetime. I hope so too. If I could give you all the power for one day and you're only allowed to make one change in oh, order no. for equality, what would you pinpoint and go, all right, there's a lot that needs to be done, but that that's going to be the first thing that I get oh. done. You have all the power. I don't know. Uh, there's too many things. That's terrible. One, uh, <laughs> I would make the world accessible um, mm-hmm. and not just a separate entrance or an oral 
the back way or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, um, to be honest. Obviously, my disability is very much around um, physical access for me mm-hmm. and equality and lots of other things. But, um, but yeah, that would be a massive bonus and make it uh, not an afterthought but the first thought. But um, we'll see. I don't know. I don't, there isn't one thing I can't <laughs> say that because there's too many things. Mm-hmm. I think sorry, can't answer that one very That's well. Okay, okay. You probably change um, airlines. That's something that you've been. Oh. I really. <laughs> um, but I think you've 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 used your platform to really call out. You know, in the past about airlines and and some of um, oh, the inequality that that existed there and the difficulties that they they made it. You know, even. You fought Virgin to drop, I hate even bringing this up, requirement that people in wheelchairs be accompanied by a carer. I can't even imagine. Um, and, you know, lobby Qantas as, as well to drop their two wheelchair limit on flights. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different things with the airlines. Um, I wasn't the only person that, that did that, but, um, you know, a lot of people have spoken out about the inequality with airlines. It's just very frustrating. Their disability policies aren't great. Um, Qantas is not too bad. Um, Virgin is not too bad again, but a lot of the budget airlines just won't have different services that they just won't give to you. Mm. Um, and it is frustrating. Um, and I'm probably a little, just a tad outspoken sometimes when I don't get things that I think should be just, you know, second nature or it shouldn't be a, Should. an option. Um so, yeah, I probably have spoken out a, a little bit about those things. But, you know, I, I, any given day I'm, I'm ready for a fight with an airline when I go to the airport. Um, just, you know, them, if they don't know and I and I was a passenger that didn't know what my rights were, then, mm. you know, depending on the day, the person, the flight, you know, you get to treated differently almost every time, unfortunately. But they've come a long way and, and you do get some great, you know, obviously some great support and great people that obviously do know what they're doing and it's, you know, you can have some great flights. And oh, for once, I would just love to get off the plane first once. That would be awesome because we get on first and we get off last. Right, yeah. I just like to get off everyone. I'm sorry, you have to sit down and wait for me. <laughs> yeah, I'd be prefer- You should. We should all bow down. You're Louise Savage. Bow it down to happen. Louise. <laughs> I'd it like be, to see it happen. I don't see why I can't. No, I can't that. Oh, no. First to get on, yeah. Everyone's such in a rush to get off and you can all get up and stand up and get your luggage ready. <laughs> yeah, you have but to get yeah. your elbows ready, don't you, as well when you, you're kind of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, what is the biggest difference, how airlines treated people in wheelchairs back in the day compared to now? Back in the day when I was a lot younger, you had to have a medical certificate and everything to be able to fly. And I'm like, seriously, I'm fitter, younger and healthier than half the people on your plane. And that they could be, uh, you know, having a stroke or a heart attack, but you don't ask them to, to have a medical certificate, but you were asking me just simply because I use a wheelchair to get around. That was phenomenal. And, and obviously that changed, but that's so discriminatory. But it is, it's funny, like they come up to you when they do the, the briefing on the plane, they're like, so in an emergency, how can we help you? And we'll just wait for everyone else to get off and then we'll come back and get you. And I'm like, really? You'll come back and get me? You sure about that? Because <laughs> I'll be one of the first one out there. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. This is Louise Savage. She's faster than all of you. She's our Paralympic legend. Unbelievable, Louise. Yep. <laughs> well, to finish off every podcast, we ask our guests, what would they tell their 10-year-old self? If they could go back and see that little, little Louise, what would you tell little Louise? Uh, well, I thought about this a bit and I just think 
I'd probably tell my 10-year-old self that you have absolutely no idea what you are going to do in life. (laughs) It's going to be phenomenal and it won't matter that you have a disability or not and don't let anyone tell you any different. It will be absolutely fantastic what you'll get to achieve and the people and the places you get to go and meet and um, it'll be phenomenal and just stick with it because, you know, you never know what's around the corner and make the most of absolutely every opportunity that comes your way. Just say yes. <laughs> well, Louise, you're a legend. You're a, um, a champion. You are a game changer, not only for the Paralympic movement, for but for Australian sport and Australia in general. So this has been a real honour for me to be able to interview you because you're someone I really deeply respect and admire. So this has been an absolute pleasure and a real treat. And thank you so much for sharing your story with On Her Game. No problem. And thank you so much for having me and for all the support of all the athletes and, of course, for my athlete, Madison. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. This episode was created in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. To stay up to date with their incredible female sporting icons, follow at PumaAU on Instagram. And remember, stay fearless.